Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 341st episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that stands united against the tyranny of high-card prices. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host is Derek the Dark Mage at Oko Assassin on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hello, everyone. Derek here, and I'm looking forward to another great discussion this week. I wanted to remind you before we start off that the show is sponsored and produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to plan your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MDG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Derek, another busy week in the world of Magic the Gathering. What do we have on the agenda? Yes, it is going to be busy as always, but we love that. Uh, This week we have our four usual segments. First off, we'll kick things off with our weekend tournament review. After that, we'll talk through some of the movers and shakers of the week and discuss why we thought these cards saw significant gains. After that, we'll talk about our cards to watch, where you and I share key cards that we have our eyes on at the moment. And finally, we'll wrap things up with our topics of the week, which includes the first spoilers from Warhammer 40k, as well as uh, talking about a little bit about Dominaria United and some of the commanders that are getting built according to the recent data. With that out of the way, James, let's talk about the decks that succeeded over the weekend. What do we got this week? Looking over the... Uh, metagame week in review we usually call this the mtgo week in review but uh we finally have a few more paper tournaments going on there was a big scg 20k that ross miriam took down that we talked about last week and just this past weekend there was a four seasons modern event in italy that featured 280 players and this was quite the spicy top eight we've got at least four decks here that you don't often see at the top tables one of them is off right off the top is Tameshi Bloom, a deck that we haven't seen in the top eights on Magic Online in a while, um, and they've got a whole bunch of new cards. You want to lead us through what's going on here? So starting off, Tameshi is really the linchpin of this deck. It is what combos off with Lotus Bloom and allows the deck to create virtually infinite mana when things are going correct. Uh, so Tameshi is a uh, three mana, two colorless and one blue Uh, it's a legendary creature and uh, it allows you to tap for one white essentially to get lotus bloom out of the graveyard Uh, and it and the cost for that is bouncing a land and so you're able to loop lotus bloom over and over again as much mana as you uh, are able as long as you have one mana to start the combo you can keep looping it Uh, and then what you do there is after that is uh, lay into one of your big threats so a cultivator colossus for example allows you to put back into play all the lands that you bounced off of uh, the Lotus Bloom combo, drawing a ton of cards, getting to your next threat, and doing that over and over again until you have a critical mass in play and you're ready to win the game. So it's very fun. Uh, you know, It's one of those things we don't see, I think, online as much as in paper because it's a really click-heavy deck on Magic Online, and so it's, it's tough to play, I think. It's annoying to the pilot. And so it's great to see it in paper. I love this deck. It's fun. It's exciting. And it's really built off a lot of the new cards that have come out in the last two years or so. 
Yeah, they're running Cultivator Colossus, Esper Sentinel, Omnath, Locus of Creation, Fort Temeshi, of course, two Finale of Devastation from War of the Spark, three Prismatic Ending from MH2, two Teferi Time Raveler, War of the Spark, and two Run and Six from MH1. The One of the ways to win here is Borborygmos Enraged, which allows you to discard lands from your hand to do three damage to anything. So if they're, you know, with a modern mana base, they might be sitting at 15 or so on turn three. If you can get Borborygmos in play and end up with you know five or six lands in hand you can just discard them to finish the game yeah i i expect that's what's happening you're able to find that even though it's a one of you're finding it off of either finale of devastation or eladomri's call and so you're you're putting that in and, and hitting for the win before you even pass the turn presumably yeah so i mean this is that's a deck that we've seen before it, it top aided in some magic online tournaments i think i want to say it's like six months ago although i'd have to double check for sure but this next one i haven't seen anything like this in quite some time this is mono blue aggro in modern and it's got elements from a bunch of other decks but you don't often see these things together this is kind of like a merfolk deck but they've put the merfolk theme almost completely aside they only have four Civilin of Sea and Sky from MH2, which is generally thought of as a merfolk lord, and most modern players, I'm sure, would have assumed it would never show up in any other kind of deck. But here it is with no other merfolk in the deck. You've got four Brazen Borrower, four Subtlety, four Civilin, four Vendil- Vendillion Click, which is a throwback threat slash control card from the Blue Black Fairies days. And then four Counterspell, four Dismember, four Force of Negation, four Chalice of the Void, and four Spreading Seas. Boy, you gotta love an aggro control deck, or I guess you could call this a tempo deck in the old parlance, that is just coming out of left field. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, it's all good cards, so it's not surprising that it succeeds, but I don't understand the inclusion of Sea and Sky in there. Um, Svendalin is a fine value card but it it's the only one that you're playing not uh not at instant speed compared to brazen borrower subtlety vendillion click so it's weird they have a tap out threat that i mean it's fine but i'm surprised to see that in there also see um the the land that you know you can untap a legendary permanent which gives you a little bit of reach for you know if you're having to do an instant block which is something i love to see you don't see minamoto's school of water's edge very often i love that card for some reason i'm not sure why uh but yeah good it's a good good stuff deck essentially um and you know casting everything on instant speed is usually a recipe for success and with brazen borrow you have a little bit of extra removal to add into the creature threat which is great further on civilin she's got three abilities two which are completely useless here she has indestructible as long as you have two other merfolk and it's not like they're rocking any mutavolts or something to get to that point. And she also gives other merfolk ward one, which is also useless here because there's no other merfolk. So basically you're just playing her as a 3-4 four for three that atta- draws a card when you attack and can be bounced to your hand with Manamo. Yep. So it's almost like it's almost like they're treating it as a advanced Ophidian. Yeah. I, I'm sure there's something you could be doing better in that slot. Uh, but other than that, all, all these cards are good. All of them see play. So it's kind of fun. And four spreading seas right now against the meta with four and five color builds relying on those triomes has got to be pretty pretty good of a hit right now. 
And people might look at something like this and think to themselves, ah, that's just some random European tournament full of nobodies. Like, this is a soft field. My friends, Andrea Mangucci was the third place deck. (laughs) (laughs) For for multi-former world champion. Um, And he was running uh, to a third place finish, Crashing Footfalls Cascade, updated to include uh, four Leyline Binding, and also... Uh, running two Brazen Borrower in the main, and then the rest of this is pretty normal-looking Yorion Omnath stuff. Did you see the cost of the Manguchi deck? I In paper, according to the list I'm looking at, TCG Player has this at about $2,200. Mm-hmm. It's pretty impressive. and uh, you, you got Yorion, so it's a little bit bigger than normal, but that's a, that's a mighty fine, expensive modern deck right there now what's interesting here to me is that we've been talking about leyline binding and how you know how widespread will the play be and i had said you know like can blue white really justify running this they're going to have to expand to triumphs that they wouldn't normally run the answer there also yes people have been experimenting with bringing five domain types into play on turn two or three to support uh, for leyline binding in that build we also had leyline bindings showing up in the more the non-hybridized versions of Omnath Yorion and I've seen it in uh, Aspiring Spike had a video up last 48 hours where he was running a league I think it was either I think it was a 4-1 league where he ran Esper Mentor and run ran for Leyline Binding as well so card is seeing more play than anticipated and, and maybe it is the Ledger Shredder of this set yeah, I mean, it's across multiple archetypes. People are starting to warp to play it. Uh, so, yeah, I think we will see in the coming weeks some counterplay to that, of course. If people know they're going to be running against it in a lot of different archetypes, they'll start to build their sideboards around it. So we'll see if it can withstand the hate. But for now, I think it is definitely the top uh, takeaway from Dominary United, at least in modern. The thing about The thing about Leyline Binding, though, is that say they... Um, they try to drop a blood moon or something on three, and you've already got your two, your five land types in play. Leyland binding is flash, right? It does, yeah, yeah. So they they drop blood moon, and you tap mana in response, let it come into play, drop binding, exile blood moon. Yeah, you can. Um, so I think of it more more as getting blown out scenarios. So if they're stealing your omnath or they're stealing things with ETB effects. Uh, your fury, things like that, that you know, you're able to counterplay, get it back, get the trigger again. That's when it becomes a little risky. So it just depends on, I think, what what you're using it to steal and kind of how the setups are, whether or not the re-entry of whatever you snag later is going to be impactful. The thing is that like anti-enchantment tech coming out of the board to deal with four binding seems unlikely. So they have to have catch-all cards that will handle it. And a lot of the things like your um like an engineered explosives type card that often key off the casting cost will have trouble getting up to the six uh cmc to deal with binding so the one that comes to mind is besaju and just running sure. instead of yeah. one running two that's or a great three example with the expectation that you're gonna get value off it and worst comes to worst you know maybe you hit a lesser target and indeed i mean this list itself runs two besaju 
right. which opens up some, does a lot of things, obviously, against affinity builds and so forth, but also has the the upside of being able to hand, get rid of somebody's uh, necessary triome and force them to go get a basic or get rid of a binding, as you said. So uh, definitely worth watching. We've got in fourth place here, they had blue-red aggro, which is basically just Murktide. There was another four-color Yorion list in fifth. Uh, they were running two Leyline Binding, for the record. Uh, creativity Combo was in sixth, and only real notables there. Four Fable of the Mirror Breaker, a card that continues to do a ton of work. And then the other really notable list here is Lotus Field Twiddle Combo, where they're running four Consider, four Dreams Grip, an Inquisition of Kozilek, four Otherworldly Gaze, one Pact of Negation, one Tome Scour, four Twiddle. Any excuse to pull out your beta twiddles for modern purposes must be a pretty fun day pulling your deck together. Three Wish, which they use to go get presumably Grape Shot most of the time, because this ends up being essentially a Storm deck, right? Because they have four Mistress Bobble, three Underworld Breach, and four Wish Claw Talisman. So they can use Wish to go get Grape Shot out of the board when they're ready, and they can use Wish Claw Talisman to get whatever it is out of the rest of their deck to keep going probably talisman for an underworld breach or something and then go off yeah honestly this looks very similar to the shell in pioneer but with more streamlined draws you have four street wraith you have four mishra bobble that are taking away eight essentially slots in the deck and just giving you redundancy you're getting you know a couple other little things like out of is legal i guess too um but yeah basically this is a pioneer deck that's been ported to modern and Clearly, they did okay here. Uh, you know, it is a grape shot deck in the sideboard. I presume that's what you're pulling out for the win most of the time. Uh, but if you need more than that, there's also the an ooze in the sideboard that you can grab with Wish that goes into play uh, with Storm for a 2-2. So you can just make a ton of bodies. Uh, there's only one Pact Negation main board, which is interesting. Um, that makes me think they're trying to kill less on the turn they go off and more on the next turn or at least playing it a little conservatively because if they expected to win every game on the turn they combo and storm off then why not run four packs uh, and they have the other three packed negations in the sideboard which is interesting yeah so definitely some spicy spicy brews at this tournament must have been some fun play this past weekend and then eighth place was Rakdos uh mid-range which is basically red black scam as it's being called in in the social sphere uh this is all of the black spells that bring creatures back from the graveyard the turn they die and they're running furies grief stothy voidwalkers croxa ragavans and seasoned pyromancer which looks like a very you know if you're heading to an fnm and you have no idea what you're going to be facing this is the kind of deck i think that is relatively easy to get comfortable with the lines of play are relatively straightforward and it's going to do a lot of work uh, force the other players to be as dialed in as you are on the play pattern yeah if you're pitching something and laying down a grief turn one and bringing it back with either feign death or undying malice and you're getting two to see their hand twice pull out two cards that's pretty easy as as far as modern decks go so i do think it is a good basic deck for for and it's good value right i mean you get to play with all the, your favorite cards um from the last year anyway (laughs) but it's it's a solid deck and it's a solid choice i've played it you know it 
it runs well it's streamlined it feels like it has game against everything which is nice unlike some of the other decks where you know some matchups are just horrendous so i like i like the choice generally speaking but i think uh we'll consider to see it going forward as well Moving on over to segment two, our top paper movers of the week. We'll kick things off with Eska, God of the Tree. This is a uh, legendary uh, creature that gives all your legendary permanents uh, Birds of Paradise powers, if I'm not mistaken. And then on the flip side, can start casting spells for free. It's out of Cal time, going from 8 to $10. It's only a 25% gain, but that's going to be on the back. Alongside a whole bunch of other cards on this list this week of Joda, uh, the new five color legends matters commander out of dominaria united products uh driving prices forward and on several different legends matters cards we've also got Sizon, perverter of truth out of champions of kamigawa going from 9 to 14 in non-foil that's going to be shieldred being experimented with as a commander in edh that's driving that one um, because it forces every opponent to draw two cards and lose two life every turn which is right up uh, Shieldred's Alley. Uh, a turn, I think it was turn one Shieldred in the Pro Trader Commander game this weekend did end up winning despite being three on one for pretty much the entire game. So there's no doubt that Shieldred is living up to the hype. Jeez, it was also, that's brutal. <laughs> yeah, it, it was like Land Lotus, Jeweled Lotus, Shieldred nice. Go. <laughs> Very nasty. Cat. <laughs> Keth is the Hidden Hand out of M2250-4. That's also a Jota card. Dragon Lord Servant Foils out of Dragons of Tarkir went from $7 to $12. That's 71% gains on the back of Miriam and Ur-Dragon, still being top 20 commanders throughout most of the summer. We've also got Captain Sisse out of Invasion, original non-foil copies going $23 to $40. That'll also be Jota, driving almost 75% gains. And... Untaidake, the Cloud Keeper out of Champions of Kamigawa, 3 to 525, 75% gains there as well, also on the back of Joda. What's next on the list? So, first up, Yoshimaru Ever Faithful, which is another Joda relevant card. It's in Commander uh, Neon Dynasty decks, and it's a 1 mana, 1 1 legend legendary matters because every time another legendary creature comes in it gets a plus one one counter and it also has partner and here it went from three to five twenty five uh you know it's running about three thousand eh rec decks so it's it's okay but uh, you know a lot of growth room potential but we'll see it's newer card i think it's the first time i've seen it spike but i know others were talking about it when joda came out and i think just like the past one one led or one mana legendary creatures you know always has potential because there's such a limited number of options out there another one ani uh, ani's hovel which we talked about in the cast last week went from 17 to 30 on the back of green, uh, green black goblins in modern uh, which is not surprising when we looked at it it was a pretty low supply i think it was your pick just last week and seemed to have moved the price there uh you're gonna have to help me james on the pronunciation of this next one drizzt Da Orden uh, right. is a fa- is a famous uh, dark elf uh, from D and D lore who's had twenty or so books written about him on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, none of which are written particularly well. Dodging stones and sticks here from the D and D readers, um, but still a very popular character and uh, a fun adventurous read for the beach kind of thing. AFR promos of this card that were heavily. Uh, 
release limited last summer have uh, seen quite significant gains over the subsequent year and this is no exception this is already risen i think i got copies as cheap as i want to say 50 dollars uh maybe six months ago and so now it's already up to 140 and now pushing 250 and 250 is really more of a placeholder here because there's only two copies listed i think there's a lightly played copy at 180 on tcg player and then the next one they want 800 or some silly placeholder value so the future price on these is just kind of a question mark. It's whatever the market will bear. And I suspect it's going to land somewhere in the mid-200s. So I wonder if it was a buyout or what is going on there. So Maybe not. But when I look at the best-selling ampersand promos, it's number one on the list, which either means people really want it or somebody came up and just gobbled up all the copies. I'm not sure which. I think you can make the argument that it's a it's probably targeting by both players and speculators on the basis of cards that can go in Jota. Because Drizzt is a legendary creature himself, of course, but he also, when he enters the battlefield, he makes another legendary creature. And Jota gives all legendaries uh, plus one, plus one for each legendary in play, so you want to max out your number number of legends, and Drizzt is a two-for-one. Mm. Yeah, looking at the sell history on TCG, it sold one, two, three, four, five, six copies before September 10th, and then on September 10th sold about mm, about a dozen copies. So looks like either the reveal pushed it or somebody went after them. But yeah, it's a absolutely ton of movement. So I think the cheapest copy on there now is for a near mint is 800, which obviously won't hold. But uh, and light play is 200 currently. Yeah. As, as I just said, the um, so Xur the Enchanter at a cold snap foils 35 to 75. That's probably on the back of renewed interest in Xur archetypes in general, based on the new Xur that came out alongside the DMU products. And I've played against that. I don't Sloan Stranger on our Discord was running it a couple weeks ago, and it's fine. Like it's a, it's a serviceable commander, but I don't think it's the, the best thing you can be doing in Enchantments Matters stuff. Uh, but that's probably what's behind Zur on the move. Minskin Boo, on the other hand, out of Commander Legends Battle for Baldur's Gate, going 13 to 30, even a non-foil, is largely legacy-driven, as we've talked about over the last few weeks. Eldrazi Conscription, out of Re- uh, Return of the Eldrazi, foils going 30 to $70. That'll be on the back of 15,000 decks in EDH rec already using the card, and then it becoming a kind of must-include if you're building Ivy, which has been one of the top five most popular commanders in the last couple weeks finishing up we've got graveyard trespasser this is the double feature silver screen non-foil version going 450 to or five dollars or so to about 15 so 233 percent gains uh still seeing heavy play in standard and pioneer despite the appearance of liliana of the veil at the three drop slot and Leyline of singularity out of guild pack foils going from six to twenty almost certainly on the back of joda because uh, it makes all permanence legendary, and Jota doesn't care. It only limits your opponents because Jota was planning on playing a bunch of legendaries anyway. Sorry, does it make permanence legendary or non-legendary? Makes all non-land permanence legendary. Right, which Jota doesn't care about. Uh, finishing up, wedding announcement: the double feature version of the card, three to twelve dollars. It's only in forty-five hundred EH rec, which isn't quite as high as people m- might have expected. It's also seeing some standard play and I think occasional pioneer play, if I'm not mistaken. And this just looks to me like people are continuing to mop up the silver screen cards that see enough play to justify it. 
Yep, sounds right. And the Graveyard Trespasser, as you mentioned, still seeing play, which is great to see. It's being usually split now as a three of alongside Liliana as a three of in Pioneer. So uh, it's not the full four copies that it used to be, uh, at least in most builds that I've seen, but it's still doing well. And I'd highlight, I pointed this out in July in one of my articles when it was still only a couple bucks. So pretty proud of that one, even though I didn't buy any myself and I should have. <laughs> Nothing worse than having the right call at the right time and not following through. Right. Uh, something that I know you are uh, certainly less guilty of over in the Magic Online sphere. Why don't you run us through our third segment, the top Magic Online movers of the week? Sure. So we have coming in the least movement of Fury. So that went from 30 ticks to 38 ticks. So an incremental gain. And that's really just based on Fury seeing incredible amount of play across modern and legacy uh, so just a solid card and we've seen all the elementals kind of pivot up and down in price uh, this along with endurance and uh, <clears throat> all the others and so it's just kind of daily movement but just a trend that you know we've seen where these go up and down based on the amount of play they've seen another one we saw was cavern of souls the double masters edition that went from 10 to 15 and that's really based on the increased play in the tribal deck so in elves in uh, goblins and others even in merfolk and the fact that it was reprinted in double masters a few months ago now the supply is starting to drain out and so it's allowing the prices to go up further uh, moving to the big gainers we have the meat hook massacre which dropped considerably in price from high 50s to about 15 ticks uh, over the last few months after it went out of redemption on Magic Online, but now it's got a new breath of life because it has been played all over Standard. And as a result, it went from 15 ticks to 42 ticks, uh, so that is a 27 tick change, 180%, so just, just dramatic in, increase there. Uh, and finally, Shildred went from 18 ticks to 58 ticks as of today. Uh, so 40 tick change, 222% gain. Uh, and this is one that I pegged when it, it actually did a 10-0 in one of the tournaments over the weekend as a three of in a Pioneer deck. And I said, you know what? If something's a new mythic, there's nothing else bleeding value in the set. This thing has to go up. And it did. So I got in at about 26 and sold at about mm, 50, depending on when I was selling. So made made a ton of ticks and a lot of the other pro traders did too on that. Very nice. Very nice. Moving on over to the cards to watch. We're going to talk through some of the uh, magic singles that we think uh, might be worth acquiring in the near future, either for your collection or for longer term speculation. I'm going to kick things off here with uh, a card that I called a different version of back in August 2021. So just over a year ago, this was the Dothy Voidwalker. And I was looking at the foil extended arts. And the reason I picked those over the old border foils at the time was that there was half as many listings back then as there were for the retro foils. And it looked like there was just less of them total in the market. And it was somewhat questionable at the time as to whether the market would prefer old border foils or foil extended art. At the time, I called them to go 16 to 35. It was, at the time, the 23rd most played modern creature. It was in 5,000 decks in EDH rec already, which was 17% of all black decks at the time. And it looked like a good, a good, pretty good place to be. Now, if we fast forward a year, the old border foils are now down to... Let me just check current listings. 
we're looking at equal now. There's 65 near mint listings for the foil extended arts and 61 for the old border foils. Thing is, a lot has uh, advanced. This card has stayed near the top of the heap, both in modern and black red decks, and in 80,000 decks on EDH rack versus 5,000 a year ago. So it's advanced by 75,000 uh, reported decks in the interim. And there was 12 copies in that modern challenge from this past weekend. We didn't talk about it in the first segment, but that's what happened on Magic Online. And that's because that black-red scam deck has really kind of advanced the cause, I think, for that deck and moved it up, you know, a half grade or something in the in the overall meta. And when we're looking at, you know, we're at the end of the print run cycle. This, these came out of CBs specifically and that drop rate is relatively low and there isn't mass cracking of MH2 CBs yet to be done. I look at these and think, you know, you can pick these up at 14 or $15 right now and get out on them at 30 in say 12 to 18 months. That seems very, very likely indeed. Yeah. It's shocking how cheap a lot of this modern modern horizons two cards, this and, and many other really good cards have gotten just because of the massive glut of supply. And I think we're going to look back at this and, two years and just laugh at some of these prices um so i think dothy voidwalker eighty thousand decks in a year so if you extrapolate that out if it keeps the same consistency you're at close to one hundred fifty thousand decks in two years i mean that's a mega staple so anything like that is bound to go up assuming it keeps the same play patterns it's been you know out of the limelight for a little while now and it's still adding more decks on edh rack and so seems like it's a rocket ship but just a matter of yeah i think you still probably have a couple months through the end of the year to start loading up on this and other modern horizons two specs but once you get past uh december you get into january february march and people start nibbling things off knowing that the end of the print run is officially coming they'll start taking off uh, over the next year or so. There's nothing in the lineup for next year that suggests to me this is going to catch a reprint. It, Like anything, it can show up in a secret layer, but less than 1% chance of that happening, probably. The- I think you got to assume you have two years on everything, and if you don't, you, you just go wide enough where it doesn't matter. But I think you have to assume you have two years on on anything, in a, in a I should say, in a Modern Horizons 2 set, in a, in a premium set, that's designed to have massive print run. There's no reason for Wizards to come back, you know, two to three years. Because uh, what? How long did it take them on Modern Horizons One? Was that? It's about. It was about two, two years, years before you right? you start yeah. to see relevant reprints. Yeah. So I think you got two years. So there's a good year where you can get in. Hopefully, get out and take your gains while you get them. This card just has so many dimensions. First of all, it's a rogue, so it has rogue interactions. It also has shadow. So in decks like Ninja, you're dropping this on two, you're swinging, and then you're, Yuriko, you're putting Yuriko into play on three. Um, it makes sure that your opponents can't execute on graveyard shenanigans because all their cards get exiled with void canners instead. And then you have this added upside of if you don't need to do anything else with the card and you don't need it in play anymore, or you're just in a bad spot and you need to deal with a board state, then you can cast one of those exiled cards by tapping and sacking the Voidwalker. That's a very broad-based set of synergies that can fit into almost any black deck, hence why we see it all over the place in black decks in both formats. Right. It's a 3-2, right? A 3-2 body that's essentially unblockable 
is not the worst. And then you stack all those other things on top of it, which is essentially rest in peace, but only for the others on the table. And then hopefully it, being able to have your day and pull an Emrakul out of somebody else's uh, discard pile and play it and get the cast trigger, you know, things like that people will remember. For sure. So what's your first card to watch this week? So the last few weeks I've been more conservative. I'm going to go with one very speculative, and I'm going to throw that out there, which is Coalition Victory, a currently banned EDH card that I think there's could I mean, there's been a lot of talk over the years about which cards could be unbanned. And this is one of those. It's eight mana. It allows you to win the game if you play if you play it for Wooburg plus three, uh, and you control one land of each type and a creature of each color. And so, you know, pretty easy to meet those dimensions nowadays but you know everyone seems to think from all the commentary i've seen that it could get unbanned uh and what made me look into this card was that it recently appeared on the list um for the newest set for dominaria united and so i said well why are they reprinting a card that there's literally zero demand for um you know, it, that seems weird. And, you know, I kind of always had this in the back of my mind. I've seen what happened with Painter Servant, for example, when it got unbanned. And, you know, I think it's one of those things where if you get in, you buy two or three copies and you hold them for forever. And when it unbans, you sell into the hype. I think you could do very well. So I have on here, there's um, the original Time Spiral set had foils. There's two different foils, the original printing uh, in Evasion and then the Time uh, shifted cards as well and the time shifted ones are a lot more reasonable they're only about 13 bucks for a near mint copy the original printing foils are about they're astronomical you can get light play for 30 40 bucks but um i think for this you probably want to stick with near mint so i'm going with the time shifted foil for about 13 dollars and moving that or $15 or so and then moving to 50 dollars if it does get unbanned you're able to sell into the hype there's only four listings for these foils on TCG Player. I'm dubious this is ever getting unbanned. It doesn't seem to add much to the format. There, are, It's not like five-color decks need a win condition to improve their play pattern or anything. And this is the kind of thing where if somebody doesn't have a counterspell, the whole, no matter what interesting board state was going on, the whole thing just comes to a crashing halt. It's also even easier than it used to be to pull the five basic land types together because of all the triomes being released now that you've got all 10 it's relatively trivial to meet that requirement and so then it's just a question of can you do you have color a creature in play that say is five colors that would be all you would need so like you could go uh fetch mana vault get a triome next turn fetch triome now you've already met half the requirements and on the next turn, you could filter your land somehow with a chromatic lantern. And the turn after that, you could Jota and, and Coalition Victory the turn after. So by like turn four or five, in the best case scenario, you could just win the game. I don't think the, the committee is going to go go at a card like this and say this on power level des- deserves to be unbanned because the format has advanced. I think they'll look at this as what's the upside? Like we're, we're adding another automatic win condition. That's going to make people salty to the format. Now, all that being said, if it does <laughs> get unbanned, then these foils will be 50 to a hundred dollars in the, in the blink of an eye. So I, I think you're correct to label it as speculative. And it's the kind of thing where you might want to have it sitting around on your, your personal watch list. 
And then if you see any additional hints coming out of the keg, then you might want to pull the trigger. And if you just like are interested in the card casually, then you know your on ramp to a sub twenty dollar copy is here now, maybe never again. So why not snap it off? Yeah. So sounds good. I I agree. So what's your next one, James? The other card I was looking at that we've been talking about in the Discord pretty much since it was released, I, I labeled it as a brick, which means it's the kind of card where it seems like you could buy a lot of them and, and do well over time, is this extended art that is present in the Commander decks from uh, Dominary United Commander and is available as extended art, but not foil extended art. And the dragon in question is Two-Headed Hellkite. This is a fairly nasty threat, and while it is certainly true that Wizards are printing so many dragons these days so that it's unclear which ones will be able to hold uh, fast in the 99 for commander players that are building uh, Ur-Dragon or elsewise five-color dragon decks, this one seems like it's going to continue to make the cut to me. This is a 5-5 five, five for Wooberg plus one colorless, so six total. Flying Menace Haste, whenever it attacks... Not hits, but attacks. It draws two cards. So it almost immediately produces card advantage. Even if they kill it on site, it's at worst a a one for one. And if it hits two or three times, then you're up six cards and you've dealt, you know, 10 or 15 damage. And because it has menace and it's flying and it has haste, so they can't really prepare for it on the board state. And they've got to deal with all your other dragons, presumably. I think looking at these extended arts and saying, okay, I can bite these off in Europe at five bucks. They're currently $9 or so, eight or $9 in North America. Pick them up in Europe at five to $6. Look to sell them at, say, 12 to 15 a little further down the road. Given the overall limited drop rate of these extended arts uh, in non-foil, seems like a pretty safe play to me. So looking at EDHREC, this looks like it's the fifth top played card out of the commander decks currently. Uh, really 672 decks, uh, top one being 1,262. So seeing solid play, uh, you know, I like that it's Wooberg rather than something less than that. I think the five color builds, um, you know, if you, if you can get all five in there, great. You know, it makes people feel, I think it makes people feel more... Um, appreciative of a card if it is Wooberg for some reason i'm not sure why that is so i i think there's been a lot of chatter about it i do wonder about whether now is the time or whether supply will increase and keep putting pressure on the price um, that said ten, dragons tend to start low and then move higher over time um i feel like there's been a few now that we've seen do that pattern with you know release day release weekend or even a couple weeks in uh, is really the low and they do tend to keep growing and this one with it having um, the menace haste and the attack trigger so you, all you have to do is attack even if it doesn't get through you get to draw the cards so people love it i love it uh, just a matter of when the price point is uh, appropriate to get in i think monitoring supply for the next you know week or two i don't think there's any rush and so if you see more and more copies coming onto the market you could wait a little bit if you don't uh, you know, it's probably time to get in. Right now, there's only seven vendors with more than four copies, uh, and of which only about four of them are priced in a reasonable level. So right now, it's not very deep, as you said. So looking good. I, I agree long term. I just don't know whether the timing is now or later. And I think that would really come from studying where these are coming from, from a slice standpoint. 
one of the counter arguments to waiting and keep in mind i'm calling this at the five dollar european price point right, not the right. nine dollar us so one of the reasons i'm flagging it not saying you necessarily have to wait is because you're already getting a discount roughly equivalent to where this might land i think the lowest this could possibly get is two to three dollars and that could happen a year out if a lot of the cbs for dominaria united get opened which we definitely expect they will be as people chase for tabernacles and the like but well, I'm I will be, say I, I would be comfortable opening a position on these near five, getting, you know, eight, 10, 12 copies, something like that, and then waiting to see if it goes up or down. Because it's a rare and not a mythic, it's not going to pull an old gnawbone. I don't see this being, you know, $40 a year from now. I think this this is very likely to end up at 10 to 15. And the question is, you know, as Oko flagged, is it going to be two to three before it then accelerates back up above? It's also worth pointing out that Miriam is one of the most popular dragon commanders right now, and this can't be played in that deck. So that automatically undercuts the amount of latent demand. Um, now, that said, Ur-Dragon is a much more popular overall commander than Miriam is, and you're certainly going to be interested in trying this out in your Ur-Dragon deck. The Card Kingdom buy list backing on this is pretty high, so it's 425 cash, 5 52 credit with 43 copies wanted so i think you're running a pretty low risk play getting in at eu prices in particular uh if you can get around that five dollar range Alrighty, so i like this next pick from you uh run me through this one sure so trying to do some research and i was shocked to see that lathril blade of the elves has been the top uh in a top five of commanders for both the last two years the last month and the last uh last week and so it you know one of those things is you know commanders come and go i usually don't tend to invest in commanders themselves i only do the wraparound support cards that are more generically uh, powerful but something that is that prevalent uh is something that warrants a second look so when i dug deeper you know the foil versions of this are only a couple bucks and the supply is starting to drain uh, because it's a it is a a Keldheim Commander deck card. Uh, so it's been the market for upwards of close to two years now, 18 months or so. And the number of copies that are selling in foil are pretty staggering, over 200 copies within the last 30 days. And so there is a wall on this. Uh, there's a wall by the gaming company that has over 100 copies. But selling 200 copies for over 30 days says that wall probably won't stick around for too long. And once it goes, the price should start to steadily climb. And so this is one I have going from the current price point of around $2 to 10 over the next 18 months. And of course that presumes it'll stay in that top five is slot and do very well. And people will want the foil copies for their commander. Uh, but even if it does fade a little bit, even if it moved into the top 20, I think that would still collectively over time, push that price up. Lathril has hanged has hung tough in the top five, top ten commanders basically since she was released. And I just played against her recently. Deck is a well-oiled machine and has all the pieces it needs, and it's only going to keep getting them. One of the major things here that supports this play is that while Lathril is maintaining popularity and the supply of her uh, foils is getting lower, you have um, an influx of additional elf cards because we have sets centered on dominaria coming out for a while and then we have modern horizons 3 slash lord of the rings next summer 
which obviously is going to have a whole bunch of elves. So you're going to be potentially get to play your Legolas in this next summer, etc. And that's just going to keep it at the forefront of Commander players' attention. And by then, without a reprint, which seems... You know, I could see Lathril showing up as a secret layer alongside Lord of the Rings, where they do, like, popular commanders in Lord of the Rings-esque art. Yeah, I could see that. But you got a solid gap between then and now. And so for these to go, say, 2 or $3 to $10, given that we're just at 28 listings near, near Mint Foil... Yeah, I mean, this seems very likely to take place. I mean, you, you only need 50 to 100 commander players to decide they want the foil in their collection to faceplate their deck, and these are going to take an upswing. I also agree with you generally that commanders are not usually what you want to target. When a new commander gets hot, you don't run out and buy copies of the commander. You buy the cards that are in scarce supply that the commander must play. But I have made tons of money on Atraxa. I've made money on Brea. I've made money on Ur-Dragon. When I, when a you know, people have made money on Prosper. If a commander is in the top 20 commanders, then the best versions of the of the card are, in fact, relevant specs. Yeah, and this, of course, is a, one of the biggest tribes. So Elves is the third big, biggest tribe, uh, according to EDH Rec, at around 24,000 decks compared to about 30,000 for Dragons. So... Uh, even the dragons is higher it's not by a, a tremendous amount and so a lot of potential here and i do think there's also the risk of the reprint being in non-foil if it's outside of a secret layer somewhere or somewhere and maybe a commander deck or something like that uh, but if you buy into the foils you don't have that risk and so that's that's one of the reasons i recommend the foils uh, but additionally i think the foils based on the data i looked at were actually selling at a greater rate than the non-foils uh, because they are comparable in price. And so right now, I think you're getting a pretty good deal on these. Now, of course, part of this does, you know, one of the comments about it won't be foil in a commander deck reprint. Well, that's a question mark now, because we know with the 40k decks, we're getting the premium decks that are all done in warp foil. And that may well lead to a new era sometime in the next year where there are premium decks released for every commander release set. Now, I haven't heard about anything for the two decks that are coming out for the Brothers War. But it would not at all surprise me to see more premium commander decks released in 2023. Yeah, I expect to see more like the coin flip commander deck in the secret layer previously, where they identified specific cards to do foil treatment in that was more broad. Or new um, art, yeah. Yeah, new art, kind of something fun for 5, 10 important cards. Uh, doing the whole deck in foil, I think, is going to be few and far between and more for premium products, I would guess. But you never know with Wizards. My final card to watch this week is one that has been hotly discussed in the Pro Trader Discord. That's the Reaver Cleaver, and I'm talking about the extended art version. Um, currently, this is a bit of an arbitrage play. These are going for fifteen or sixteen dollars in North America. You can snap them off in Europe uh, somewhere around eight or nine dollars. So there's not a huge margin there, and but this is a, a piece of equipment that is doing very well in the early tallies on EDH Rec. It is the second most played card already reported in a thousand decks, and more importantly, it's showing up in 43% of red decks that have been listed since release. Now, part of that is influenced by people registering the precons uh, for play and then building up on them because the Reaver Cleaver is from the precons. So it's hard to tell where this is going to land a year, two years, three years out. 
And one of the fail cases that was mentioned um, as you know a potential warning by another pro trader was Wand of Orcus. This was a, a equipment from last summer's AFR Commander uh, card set, and Wand of Orcus went up over the one year period. Started very low as well, five or six bucks availability, and then spiked up to fifteen or sixteen, and then fell off from December of twenty twenty one to now down to about six dollars. So if you buy these 8 or $9 copies I'm telling you to in Europe and it takes the same path as Wand of Orcus, you may as well have waited a, a year and saved yourself 2 or 3 bucks a copy. Thing is, Wand of Orcus, I think, is a step down. Wand of Orcus is very much a zombie-specific uh, commander card, whereas Reaver Cleaver is just a great piece of equipment if you're, you're in red and you can attack effectively. Reaver Cleaver is 2 and a red for a legendary artifact equipment, Equipped cost is three. Equipped creature gets plus one plus one and has trample. And whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player or planeswalker, create that many treasure tokens. So there's a bunch of dimensions here. The first and most important is that the theme of treasure tokens in general, I think, is widely agreed to be both overly prevalent in the cards that are being produced these days and overly powerful. Most of the decks that can build successfully around treasures, leveraging things like Magda or Dockside Extortionist or Korvold, um, can get ahead in a hurry because they tend to get, accelerate mana advantage in a way that was previously only available if you were ramping with green ramp spells or you were dropping mana rocks. And now you can be dropping mana rocks and or ramping and building up a storehouse of treasures so that you go kind of all in one go in a turn from say four or five mana available to eight or nine mana available and then just go off and do a bunch of craziness. The other thing here is that Reaver Cleaver as a red card that is an equipment will fit into a bunch of red, white, and red or white uh, artifact and equipments matters decks where they can equip for cheaper. You think about something like a Stoneforge Mystic where they can uh, equip at instant speed where they can potentially get discounts on the equipment cost or uh, bring the equipment back from their graveyard and swap it with goblin engineer type abilities all of that says to me that this is a supremely flexible and powerful card that happens to have tacked on it an ability that we know is relatively busted because on old gnawbone a dragon from last summer that was uh, a seven drop the the ability being on old gnawbone has been very, very good every time it's been in play for me. So to be able to get this on a creature at six mana before you would even get to Old Gnawbone seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, I think the fact that it's red and, like you said, fits into the red-white equipment-type build is really critical here. You get a little bit more searching for it. The one copy goes up very, very far. And realistically, it costs three mana originally, plus three to equip, but realistically, a lot of times it's going to be just the three to get it into play, and the equip cost is going to get itself back plus some. Uh, and so this card is powerful. The question is, again, is always, like, can it, can it stick? Can it stay? Can it keep building? I think your idea of getting in and getting out right away from kind of the EU pricing into the US pricing is the safe bet. Uh, but the other thing is to look at, you know, kind of look at this and say, okay, well... Where do we think we'll be in a you know two and a half three years? And this seems like one that's going to gain over that time, about two to three years. The question is, long term, is when's the buy-in? Because I've seen so many cards that are fantastic and have the stats to back it up that just 
never get over that 10 to $15 price tag. So uh, at least for the first couple of years, they're in print. And so I think flipping right away probably makes sense here. And then, you know, in the long term, this is one that I'll be wanting to buy a brick of, but I'm just not sure of the timing quite yet. Additional downside is that it's a rare, not a mythic like Old Knobbone. Additional upside, Old Knobbone is a 7-7 flyer that does not have trample. So in a deck where you might run Knobbone and Reaver Cleaver, you can put Reaver Cleaver on Knobbone and give it trample to make sure even if it's blocked by a flying token or something, it's getting through. It's getting through for more, and then you're getting twice as many treasure tokens. And if that doesn't set you up to win the game, I don't know what will. Yeah, this card, I mean, if you put it on any real threat and they let it live, it's going to help take over the game pretty quickly. And yeah. so it's just a matter of whether maybe it's maybe it's too good, right? <laughs> we'll see. But I mean, that there's a good possibility where, you know, some of these cards are so good that it kind of feels unfair. And so hopefully it is that good and people like it. But, you know, I think look at keep looking at the stats also for another couple weeks see how people adjust but i expect this to stay dominant and expect to be the you know one of the top if not the top card over time from dominary united commander so if i'm looking top to bottom here i think that two-headed hellkite and reaver cleaver are watching weights you could jump in at eu pricing now get a smattering dollar cost average up or down later or you could just wait and try to probe a low you know three six nine twelve months out Definitely want to have both cards on your list. Lathro looks like a slam dunk to me at current pricing because the potential for it to be three, four, or five times the current price of $2 seems very high. I could easily see these foils being $30 down the road if it never catches a reprint. Um, Coalition Victory, as you said, highly speculative. And I think my favorite of the week is Dothy Voidwalker OBFs 14 to 30 because even though that's going to be probably on a mid to longer term horizon, I, I don't see how this goes wrong. Any anything at eighty thousand decks, it's hard to go wrong, honestly. And I do think the reprint window is closed for a little while. So get your copies in the next four months or so before the holiday season, and get ready and just let them sit for a year or two to age, and you'll be good to go. All right, we'll move on over to our topics of the week. We're going to take a look at the latest reveals, the newest spoilers from the Warhammer Forty K uh, Commander decks. I was flagging for the pro traders today the following premise. There are four Warhammer crossover decks here. We've only seen the full deck list for a single deck so far. That's the Tyranids. It is a teamer, swarm, plus one, plus one counters, slash X spells matters deck that uh, has a bunch of pieces that are going to be very relevant for uh, both Atraxa and Animar at the top of the list, and a whole bunch of other commanders as well. Um, so we've only seen 25% of this release, some total. But we've seen some choice pieces based on a, a hour-long reveal video that Wizards did um, from the other decks, and they look good. The power level of these cards generally looks pretty high in terms if you're comparing them to other pre-cons that have had new cards in them. And I don't see a like a fierce guardianship level card in here necessarily, but I definitely if that's like a nine or whatever, I definitely see a bunch of six sevens and eights in in the set. So and that's just looking at the Tyranid deck. But the point key point I tried to make to the pro traders this afternoon in a note was that this is the first time that we've had commander precons that include 
a ton of new cards, like dozens of them. And there is no booster pack equivalent. There are no, this isn't a Warhammer set that has draft booster boxes, set booster boxes, and collector booster boxes. And yes, the cards are only in the decks, but they're also in extended art in the CBs. None of that exists. You And the premium version of these decks, it, the, the warp foils of these new cards and also some of the reprints, some of them are the first time they're in a premium foil. And for the ones that are brand new, this is the premium foil for that card, maybe forever. Because how long will it take to get reprints of the 40k licensed cards? They might reskin them and rename them at some point in the future. But I don't think they're going to print them with these names because a lot of them are very specific to Warhammer IP. There are licensing concerns. So you can't just reprint, for instance, Gene Stealer Locus into Modern Horizons 4 like, or Commander Legends 6. Like That's just not happening. So this... The premium decks are also uh, the premium LGS limited releases plus Amazon. So Amazon gets a pass because they have a direct relationship with Wizards. Um, but a lot of vendors that are not uh, on the premium LGS program with Wizards that aren't part of the WPN don't even have access to these decks as inventory. Now, the regular versions of the decks are going to be relatively easy to find. They should be all, all over the place for quite some time and probably have a print run very similar to any other commander deck. But the warp decks, the premium foiled versions, are not like that. So that's a pretty big deal in terms of setting up a situation where the most popular cards, the top five from this set, are probably going to get very pricey very fast. Yeah, the collector editions in particular, the the amount of supply seems to be pretty limited. I don't know if you're hearing the same thing, but I know one vendor said they were having a, a, a hard time getting them in stock and that they estimated it would be about 4% of the regular versions. Uh, I don't know if I trust that math, but uh, needless to say, from, from what I've heard, they're going to be pretty low supply, and this is the first time they've done the collector's editions. And usually when... Watsy does something for the first time, they aim to have it go very, very well so that it's repeatable in the future, it sets the tone, it makes people buy into that option. And so my guess is that the they they should do pretty well, particular in the collectible edition. Uh the other edition, you know, they're not they're pretty reasonably priced. It's great IP. Uh, people love it. I've I have a friend that invites me to play 40k all the time, and he was texting me about this, and he definitely doesn't play Magic, so I think it's going to get other players in as well. And the cards look pretty good. Um, like you said, there's no fierce guardianship. There's no cycle so far. Uh, we've seen one deck, so I guess no cycle probably at all. But that really jumps off the page as broken. But solid cards that look fun, look innovative. Uh, I'm liking what I'm seeing so far. So let's talk about some of these. Uh, pick out some cards that have jumped out at us i really like bone sabers uh two and a green artifact equipment whenever equipment creature whenever equipped creature attacks put four plus one plus one counters on it equip three so this is interesting because it's a very close analog to wand of orcus to reaver cleaver and then you're comparing the two so reaver cleaver gives trample and plus one plus one makes sure the creature hits then you get a bunch of treasure tokens this thing just makes the creature itself bigger I don't think that that's as good as Reaver Cleaver. I think it's better than Wand of Orcus, so it's somewhere in the middle. And one of the th reasons I think it's better than it first looks like is 
in plus one plus one counters matters decks, so your Animars and your Atraxes and so forth, sometimes making a creature bigger via via the vis-a-vis counters leads to comboing off and finishing the game. Because when you put the counters on, if there is a doubling season, it's going to double them. If there's a hardened scales, it's going to add one. If you do it on something like a Forgotten Ancient, it can distribute them to other creatures. If it goes onto a spike, likewise. If you're proliferating, then you get even more of them. If it's on something like Sage of Hours, then you can start taking extra turns. There's a lot... Like, the plus one plus one counters theme is not as dangerous as Treasures, but it's as prevalent. In fact, more so. There are more cards that... that interact with those counters and can gain those counters for benefit so i don't think this one is necessarily a red hot brick but in part it will depend on how many more you know animar level commanders appear that care about these counters because in animar where it's got pro white and pro black and it gets plus one plus one for every creature you cast and then as long as it's in play your creatures cost x less where x is the counters on animar if you drop Bone Sabers and equip it on Animar and swing, and they can't kill Animar, then your next you could be dropping your old Gnawbone for two mana or whatever. It's just gonna get silly in a hurry. So I, th- I think that one's good. Yeah, I think it's funny if this got printed four or five years ago. I think people would be going a little crazy, and the power levels just gotten so insane lately that something like this, which is normally just pretty solid, can even fly a little bit under the radar. But any equipment that is viable, that does good things at a reasonable cost, I think usually does fairly well. And this is one where, yeah, it only goes into the right sort of decks that really can, I think, take advantage of the counters. But for those decks, it seems to do its job at, at a pretty good rate. I mean, three three to play, three to equip, uh, similar to Bone Cleaver, but, um, or Reaver Cleaver. But, you know, this one, like you said, not not as powered, but definitely will do its job. Screamer Killer. Tyranid, 5-5 five, five for 4 and a red. It's a 5-5 five, five trample. It has Bioplasmic Scream. Whenever you cast a creature spell with mana value 5 or greater, Screamer Killer deals 5 damage to any target. So that's the kind of card you could throw in lots of different places. You could throw it into dragon decks, even though it's not a dragon, because then every subsequent dragon that you cast deals 5 to something. That's non-trivial amounts of damage. Um do that a few times and you could just knock a player out of the game in commander but it's even more interesting in decks that are big creatures matters decks so i mean this deck itself is one of those but you also have things like myel uh the ana animist that that are going to cast a bunch of big creatures all, all the time and you could have creatures that can be bounced back to your hand kind of thing um where this is going to do a whole bunch of damage and potentially save it so like something like a, a hull breaker breacher horror or some of the other blue creatures that can phase out or bounce or you're going to flicker them or whatever and bring them back to the hand and casting them again sets off screamer killer again this seems like a role player not necessarily a, a massive spec target this other one over here though uh, piques my interest as potentially brickable. This is Shadow in the Warp. One red-green enchantment. The first creature spell you cast each turn costs two less to cast. So it's a a very solid Power Stone-esque mana rock in and of itself. Because if you're in a heavy creatures deck, this is giving you a very solid discount rate 
uh, on three, potentially on two. Like if you go elf, land, next turn, land, shadow in the warp, you could be casting a five or a six drop the turn after. And then whenever an opponent casts their first non-creature spell each turn, Shadow in the Warp deals two damage to that player. I've played a whole bunch of um, Kambal, Console of Allocation in EDH, where you have a four-point life swing every time they they cast a non-creature spell. And it is very annoying, and the table frequently feels that they have to deal with it. Shadow in the Warp is has a similar effect. It doesn't give you life, but still still does the damage. Uh, but it's an enchantment, so it's harder for them to deal with. They've got to decide whether they want to put point one of their few enchantment slash artifact point removal spells at this thing uh, to get it off the table. This looks pretty good to me. This was the card that impressed me the most um, because the the I, I would have expected this to reduce each of your first creatures by one. Reducing by two is a big deal. I mean, this is for three, so that means on turn four you're dropping a six drop or better. Um probably a, maybe even a seven drop if you accelerated this out on turn one with like you said an elf or a bird or something like that so on, you could be throwing out a seven drop on turn three with this that's pretty spectacular uh and the downside and the the if you can't play creatures which i doubt the the ability to ping your opponent every time they're casting non-creature spells for two damage it's a good little add-on. I think that's what's making you run the card, but it is definitely good. And this is one I think you can let it, it'll get cheap, I would expect, because there's going to be no competitive play. Uh, and then, you know, this isn't something that I think gets easily reprinted into other spaces. And it is a unique effect that, you know, doesn't get printed that often. Reducing a casting cost by two is pretty dangerous, which is why they put it as your first creature spell each turn. And you have to also cast it. Uh, but I think long-term, this one's a winner. There's also some sneaky ways to get around that. You could be in uh, red, white, green as your color base and have a bunch of creatures with flash and be playing mm-hmm. one on each opponent's turn. It's true. And and getting that too. So you could be potentially saving eight mana a turn cycle if you've got the right cards in hand. It's also really good in decks like Nikia of the Old Ways. She's a commander of 5-5, five, five, Centaur Druid for five. You can't cast non-creature spells, so you don't care about that part. But whenever you tap a land for mana, you double that mana. So once you got Nikia down and this in play, you know, if, if you dropped Nikia when you had five land, on the following turn you're making ten plus, you could be casting a twelve drop the turn yes. after Nikki comes in. So that's pretty cute. That's fun magic right there. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, what else? So out I think here? the card I, I really liked was the new commander that uh, the pinging commander. Let me pull it up here. That was Gearson Starn Kellermorph. That's a mouthful. One blue red for a three, two Tyranid human with ward two. It has three auto stubs, which I think refers to their guns. Whenever another source you control deals exactly one damage to a permanent or player, Starn deals two damage to that permanent or player. Um, so that's like a, you know, taking one damage, turning it into three. Lots of lot That activates a whole bunch of cards that don't get played anywhere else. So good. So uh, there is a good article by on MTG Price that just came out right before the cast that was highlighting some of the good inclusions. Uh, have people go to the, the website, take a look. Uh, but it, like you said, it activates so many good cards, uh, and it's just fun, right? Who doesn't like using pingers, uh, go dating all the way back to Timmy, and you know, just being able to have good old 
you know, old school magic times. And so this, I think, is... Let's Prodigal Sorcerer tap for Bolt. Yep, yep. So, you know, I think it's hard not to like. And who knows how much it'll actually be built and whether it'll it'll move cardboard. But I really like it. I like the design. I will say on these 40K, I don't get the... I mean, I get it from a flavor standpoint, but I, I don't like the inclusion of these miscellaneous phrases, three auto subs or... Um, you know, each of the cards are referencing, I'm assuming, part of the 40K guidebook or lore, I assume. Yeah, I mean, Wizards has been doing that that keyword template templating yeah. for a while. And it's always been a little weird to me, too. But I get I kind of understand, especially with newer players, why it's necessary from a design perspective. You want to be able to say, I'm going to use three auto stubs. They say once, what does that do? You explain it. And then on subsequent turns, you can just use that as a shortcut to refer to your game actions where you can be like, okay, three auto stubs again. And they nod because they've heard you do it three or four times already. And they get it as opposed to explaining the the process. But yeah, it does take, it does take up that. a lot of, does take up a lot of real estate on the card. Now, that being said, this reminds me a lot of another recent commander that just came out with Dominaria United. That is in the top three most played and built, which is Torwaki the younger recently uh, featured on the command zone. Um, and, did a ton of work in in the uh, hands of one of the players there. It's a three black red three three reach lifelink human archer. If another source you control would deal one deal non combat damage to a permanent or player, it deals that much damage plus one to that permanent or player. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, Torwaki the Younger deals two damage to any target. So that kind of like compounding ping effects. We know it's good on Torwaki. This is basically a Torwaki variant in different colors, so it's probably also going to see a significant amount of play, and and arguably the blue-red side of things may have more ping options than the black-red side of things. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, that's kind of the, the core color for it. And, um, you know, having it cost three versus five, having the ward, having it do two damage instead of one for most of the times all big improvements and and it's messaged as such because this is a rare rather than a an uncommon so they were kind of throwing that in there but you know clearly didn't have tor walkie as kind of a signature within the set it came from here's a potential brick target toxicrine three and a green two four reach death touch tyranid hypertoxic miasma all lands have tap add one mana of any color and lose all other abilities so assuming you're in, let's say, a four or a five color deck that includes green, and you just you want to make sure you can fix your own lands, but you're not leveraging abilities on lands for combo potential or anything, you get to kind of a, a Blood Moon-esque effect, where it's not depriving them of colors. On the contrary, it's giving them whatever colors they want, um, but in exchange for losing all special abilities. So they can't Strip Mine, they can't Castle Vantress, they can't Castle Lockthween, they can't, um, you know, uh, use Riptide Laboratory to bounce wizards. They can't use Sliverhive to make slivers. This looks v- broadly applicable in a ton of different decks. Now, I don't think it's CDH playable because it's a four casting cost two four, but in you know six to you know five to eight gear level geared geared EDH decks, I can see this seeing a lot of play. 
Reach and death touch combined isn't terrible either, right? So at a minimum, it's doing a good job blocking and just holding down the fort, which is not something to scoff at either. I also like Biophagus. This is a one and a green for a one three human tyranid wizard. So it's a green wizard. I don't even remember. I don't know if we've ever had that before in Magic the Gathering. Oh, I mean, I guess there's probably some five color wizards, but... This has genomic enhancement. Tap, add one mana of any color. If this mana is spent to cast a creature spell, the creature enters the battlefield with an additional plus one plus one counter on it. So it's a Birds of Paradise for one more, two extra toughness and one one extra power, and it adds additional plus one plus one counters to creatures when they come into play. So in the plus one plus one counters matters deck, this is very, very solid ramp. It's not the kind of card that's going to draw a kill spell. These kind of utility slash mana creatures tend to live because people have bigger targets on their plate. And that's just going to... in The counters matters decks. It's all about snowballing, interlocking synergies to the point where anytime a counter hits something, five of them hit instead. And this helps along with that while also accelerating your game plan. So I could see a lot of copies of this card selling over time. Yeah, it's really restricted to the Counters Matters deck, though, I I expect. I'm not sure how big of an archetype that is. Honestly, I've never looked at the data, but there's infinite number of two-mana spells that that produce extra mana. So The the simplest answer to that is Atraxa's been the number one commander forever, Sure, and, and this fits right in there. But it's, also, but it's also good in Animar, and there's probably five or ten other commanders that are plus one plus one matters, ma- counters matters, including the commander from this deck, which right. is just going to yeah. see pl- plenty of, of play as well. Um, so I think that one's a pretty good one. What do you think about Imatek, the Stormlord, the two black, two colorless for a 3-3? Three, three, uh, when one or more artifacts leaves the graveyard, create two, two, two black uh necron warrior artifact tokens and grand strategist at the beginning of combat on your turn another target artifact you control gets plus two two and gains medicine on to turn i was just trying to think through the first clause if you know there's there's things you could be looping to just be making essentially two twos two two twos every single turn yeah i mean there there definitely I mean, I are there has to be there definitely are. I, I don't know how much of Imatech's going to get built versus, say, something like Marnius Kalgar. Like, they they have shown us not the whole deck, but they've shown us a few cards from the um, Imperium build. And Marnius Kalgar is two Esper for a 3-5. Legendary creature Astarte's Warrior, double strike. Master Tactician, which means whenever one or more tokens enter the battlefield under your control, draw a card. And then Chapter Master, six, create... Two, two, two white Astartes warrior creature tokens with vigilance. This is probably the most busted commander out of the four decks, and probably the one that will see the get see the most play get get built the most because this very much looks like a Corvold to me. I, I play a lot of Corvold. This seems very similar. It's a five or six drop that is good on its own. It's a three five double striker, so it hits hard for six. Anytime you make any kind of token, which is translation treasure, but also applies to clues, applies to food, uh, applies to uh, creature tokens, applies to... I think we're getting Power Stone Shards as prefaced on the Karn card from Dominaria United. Mm, yeah. When we when we get to Brothers War, I think we're going to see a bunch of Power Stone tokens. Uh, and so Kalgar is, very, is just nakedly powerful. 
you don't have to get super creative or fancy to make this deck. Just grab all the stuff in those colors that does the thing. Like Smothering Tithe <laughs> already right. makes makes treasures when they do their thing. And when you do that, you draw a card. So like Mag- Marnius plus a Smothering Tithe means make a treasure, draw a card. That's just silly. And that's tip of the iceberg, right? Like there's so many other things that people are going to play alongside this that, that do work. Uh, even something like, you know, innocuous two mana make two one one spells in white are going to read that as a cantrip. So you're basically cycling them and drawing a card each time while you're making warrior tokens, which he, in theory, is probably buffing in some way with other components of the deck. So I'm pretty sure Marnius is going to be the top commander here and looks very, very strong. Can you imagine Marnius with the Reaper Cleaver on him hitting for six twice with the double strike, making 12 treasure tokens? Unfortunately, because it's in red, he's not going to get that chance. But Oh, yeah. that's true. That's yeah, that'd true. be nasty. <laughs> I, also, I also like Balakor, the Dark Master, three Grixis for a 6-5 Demon Noble. When it enters the battlefield, you draw X cards and lose X lives, X life where X is the number of demons you control, which at minimum is going to be draw one, lose one. And then whenever another demon enters the battlefield under your control, it deals damage equal to its power to any target. <clears throat> We don't have nearly as many demons as we do dragons, but there is still a fun build around deck to be done here. Yeah, I was just looking up demon tribal to see what what were the top things going on. And, you know, some of them are okay. I think Gyruda was one that I saw was pretty fun. Obviously, Razaketh is pretty good. Uh, There's a lot of good options in there. Lord Xander, who came up with a little bit of hype, but hasn't really quite gotten there yet. So I think you could do something fun there. Definitely play something unique that you're not seeing a lot elsewhere. We've also got Sazric the Silent King, one triple black, three four legendary artifact creature Necron flying. My will be done is the keyword template. Whenever the Silent King attacks, mill three cards. You may put an artifact creature card or vehicle card from among the milled cards this way into your hand. So that's a... 3-4 flyer for 4 that as soon as it starts swinging, you start bringing stuff back from the yard and casting it. Solid value engine. We've got the Swarm Lord, 3-teamer, 5-5, five, five, Tyranid, Rapid Regeneration, which means the Swarm Lord enters the battlefield with 2 plus 1 plus 1 counters on it for each time you've cast it. So basically, every time you cast it, it costs you 2 more, but it comes in 2 bigger. So it's a 5-5, five, five, then a 7-7, seven, seven, then a 9-9, nine, nine, etc. It's also got Xenos Cunning. Whenever a creature you control with a counter on it dies, draw a card. <laughs> as with uh marnius calgar <clears throat> that's nakedly powerful because as i said there are tons of plus one plus one creature cards like dozens of them and so every time any of them dies you drawing a card is going to mean that you're going to have very solid card advantage throughout the game the other big commander from that deck is magus lucia kane one teamer for a 1-1, one, one, Human Tyranid Wizard. At the beginning of combat on your turn, plus a plus, put a plus 1, plus 1 counter on target creature. So if you have a hardened scales out, you grow a creature by 2. And Psychic Stimulus. Tap, add 2 mana. When you next cast a spell with X in its mana cost, or activate an ability with X in its activation cost this turn, copy that spell or ability. You may choose new targets for the copy. So you're casting a Hydra and getting 2 of the Hydra instead. 
Yeah, of of the three you just mentioned, she she seems to be the most powerful. You know, this is something you can clearly abuse where the others are, I think, mostly value. Uh, I you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to what applications they use it on. And I do wonder um, if some of these kind of X matters will start driving up the price of that Modern Horizons 1 mythic. I'm trying to remember. It's had its day in the sun. And it kind of comes and goes. Uh, that that gives you extra I'm trying to look it up here unbound flourishing yeah unbound flourishing which seems to spike as you know whenever new x spells come into play or you come into the the public eye and then starts to fade thereafter i'm i'm curious if we see that go up again in result of you know all these new x matters type of cards i think that unbound flourishing foils because the the card people were wondering in our discord whether the card would be reprinted in the deck and it wasn't and so now foils are 11 dollars with 24 listings left they're going to be 30 dollars foils in a hurry so if you want an honorary pick for people that listen and don't just read the cast post unbound flourishing foils near 12 are going to hit 30 yeah i tend to agree with that i'm Curious how deep supply is in the foils. It's got to be pretty shallow. Um, for near mint listings, there's 24, and they go from basically 12 bucks pretty quickly to 16, and then up into the 20s. So those will go pretty fast. The other card here that looks brickable to me in the long term and is mostly limited by its colors, that it's it's too teamer to cast, so it's only going to be played in teamer decks. But that also happens to be the colors of the counters matters cards for the most part it's not really a white and black thing uh is the first tyrannic war it's a saga which is already cool factor it's gonna have a premium warp foil which is pretty cool and then it's got three chapters you may put a creature card from your hand onto the battlefield if its mana cost contains x it enters the battlefield with a number of plus one plus one counters on it equal to the number of lands you control so cast a Hydra for five, and you have five lands in play. It comes in as a 10-10, if it was going to be a 5-5 five, five otherwise. And then on turns two and three, you double the number of each kind of counter on target creature you control. So that 10-10 then becomes a 20-20, and then a 40-40 the turn after, in just a basic use case scenario. Now the part that people are missing here, as they skim through it, that is a show-and-tell, people. That <laughs> first part is show and tell but mm-hmm. only for you so on five mana which could be turn three or four in commander you are putting any creature in your hand into play to start this process off anything <laughs> yeah you want the plus one encounters you can but it's you don't have to build around that if you're playing a deck that can use it i'm the, i wish you know just broadly speaking i wish these 40k cards were less multicolored. I get why they do it, but you know, having so many be two to three colors, I think at least from the speculation side, makes it harder to find things that I think will gain traction over time, um, which is a little unfortunate. The thing that will push me to pull the trigger on this card as a spec will be if I'm right and one of the teamer commanders ends up being second to Marnius. If it goes like Marnius and then Magus, Lucia, Kane as the two most built commanders for the month of October or something, or they're in the, or the two of them are in the top five, then that will probably and and she stays there mm-hmm. for a while. Then you're gonna have you can't run this in Atraxa, but you can run it in Animar, 
And if Animar and Magus Lucia Kane are like top 50 commanders for a long while, then I, I think you're going to see Tyrannic War get up there. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a solid card. I just think with with three three colors and the, the second half only mattering to certain decks I think, and it costing five mana, I could see it just not catching on, but I'd like to be proved wrong. You could fun you card. Could, you could drop something with a big shield counter on it. <laughs> nice. I like that. I'd have to think it through. Like I haven't thought through all the use cases, but anything that show like gives you the good half of show and tell with no downside immediately for five mana seems bustable. Yeah. So even if you put it in for the plus one one with that two mana ramper, got a one one counter. Uh, no, you can't use that for this. Never mind. Hmm. Yeah, I'd have to think through it more, but I don't know. It just seems like one of those that on its face looks good, and then you try to you try to test it out, and you probably practice with Co- it, and it's it it's color come together. It's color and theme limited. Inside right. team or counters matters. It's it's such an auto include. So oh yeah, absolutely. So so, so it yeah, really no depends on how many of those decks are getting built, which is why I said I want to see how Magus Lucia Kane does. Um, and then in, in my mind, there's, you know, if that was a popular enough deck, there's no question that that card's going to see a lot of play. And keep in mind, there's tons of Animar players around, and this fits very nicely into Animar. Um, okay, I mean, I think that's most of the the key cards that I saw so far. I think next week we should have the rest of the reveals from this, this uh, deck cycle. Looking forward to some additional hot cardboard. Yeah, right. I, we should have all of them. Do you think we'll have the secret layers next week as well, or is that coming closer to release date? I think that's closer to release date would be my guess. Yeah, that would be my guess, because they weren't listed on the preview sheet, so right. I think so. So the only other thing I wanted to go through today was I wanted to take a look at how the Dominaria United Commanders are breaking into the top commander lists on EDH Rec. So in the past month, for instance... Uh, we've got Atraxa, Miriam, Lathril, the Ur-Dragon, and Yuriko as our top five. So these are kind of all-star commanders. The only really new one there is Miriam from Commander Legends earlier this summer. But if we look at the past week, people are definitely turning their attention to the Dominaria United stuff. And by far and away, Joda the Unifier is out in front there. 755 decks built. Um, and... I mean, you, you want to take a look at whether Joda, for instance, could use the Tyranid War. You know, mm-hmm. is there some massive, massive legendary card that Joda wants to run? Like may, maybe Joda wants to dr- to drop the Ur-Dragon into play. Right. I mean, they're, they're, the possibilities are limitless, honestly, with that sort when, of card. When you're a five-color Legends right. Matter Commander. Second most play is Ivy Gleeful Spell Thief. This is the uh, Fairy Rogue 2-1 for green and a blue that whenever you cast a spell, that, whenever any player casts a spell that targets only a single creature other than Ivy, you can copy that spell and the copy targets Ivy. So if they put any auras on their own creatures, um, you get a copy. This is really amazing if you're playing against um, the Esper auras, Matters, uh, Zer decks, one or the other of them. And... Even if you're only getting benefit from your own stuff for the most part, you're doubling up on it. Then we've got Lathril in third, Atraxa in fourth, and Ur-Dragon in fifth. 
Miriam in sixth, Yuriko in seventh, and then the next uh, Dominaria commander is Shieldred in eighth. Played against that deck this weekend. It was very, very strong. Um, You know, they can do things like Dark Deal and do Wheel of Fortune impressions, and then everybody draws seven cards, five cards, whatever, and loses a bunch of life. And we had, we lost to the deck, even though we were gang piling against that player from the get go. So I think Shieldred Mm -hmm. is destined to be a medium popular commander because i think she's gonna end up like tiny bones where it's kind of annoying to play against but she's gonna see tons of 99 play anyway yeah and the stats are already bearing that out in that she's in 750 deck 730 decks but uh or, i'm sorry 730 commander slots and 1200 2539 decks so about fourfold already in decks versus commanders, and I think that trend, I agree, will continue. The only other Dominaria United commanders that have broken into the top 20 are Miria, Scholar of Antiquity, which is a fairly broken-looking commander, really. One green, red, 3-3, three, three, Elf Artificer. Tap an untapped non-token artifact you control, add green. Tap two untapped non-token artifacts you control, exile the top card of the library you can play it this turn. Very combo-y. In, in some weird colors to be doing those combos. Um, so you're limited by your colors, but there, there are some very good builds of Myria. And then Braid's Arisen Nightmare is in 20th, 241 decks reported so far. Um, I've played this in draft a lot, and she's super busted and limited when you're playing black-white tokens because you sack a token and they have to sack a creature, and if they don't have tokens of their own, they're sacking a 2-2, two, 3-3, two, three, three, or bigger for your token. Things get If they don't do that, then that player loses two life and you draw a card. This looks like a fun commander to build, because it puts pressure on the table to make bad decisions over and over again. Um, and they can kill her if they want to, but it's, she's cheap enough that you're going to cast her three or four times per game. Yeah, fun, and uh, you know, I think... There's a reminiscence about braids for people that have played for a long time, have played braids and cubes and other things. So being able to have braids be your commander, I think is just a nice little extra too, on top of the fact the card's pretty good. You know, you're getting either people sacrifice every turn or you're, you know, getting value and getting your cards drawn. So either way, it's doing its job every single turn. Uh, it's only in 240 decks. So what is that relative to Joda? About three times a third. less. Yeah, about a third. So a uh, big gap. I mean, I think Joda is one of those that you just look at and you just say, God, it, they, they wanted to push this, right? It was clearly a, a strong card. They knew it was a strong card and they put it out there anyway. And the results are showing. I mean, people love five color. People love cascading. And what's better than cascading is cascading is something you know is going to be a hit because it's a legendary card. So. It's it's also the right commander for the right time in a in a set and on a plane where legendary matters has been a theme the whole time, because they've printed so many legendary creatures in the last two or three years. A lot of them have not seen, have not had reason to be played because they don't fit well into the themes of some of the most popular commanders. And here you have this catch-all commander that you can build a ton of different ways that you can rebuild over time. And I think one of the things that especially speculators or vendors that don't play commander don't really fully grasp is how much more valuable a commander is when they're they can when you don't solve the problem necessarily the first time out. Like I don't I'm not planning on building Lathril and I don't play that intend to play that deck at all because I think that it's a very straightforward build. 
you're throwing all the best elves in there. You have a couple of key combos that make sense. And once you've played it five or ten times, you've kind of seen the play patterns. But Atraxa, I'm never going to take apart. Brea, I'm never going to take apart. Because you can build and rebuild these decks in like a myriad of different ways. Because Proliferate interacts with so many other, a grow, increasingly growing number of uh, mechanics in the game. And likewise, Brea always gets fresh artifact fodder to and weird artifact interactions to leverage. Like we're going to the Brothers War, so there may be a resurgence in Brea uh, demand heading into that and the other artifacts matters commanders like urza for instance i have two possibly a third version of a track set that's going to get built and i think joda is much the same because over time you'll pull you'll be like ah, i don't really like these five or ten legends i'll swap them out for some of the new ones that have gotten printed and see how i like that and all sorts of weird interactions are going to come out up that you would never see in any other deck and I think that's cool. I think Joda will continue to be popular. I would not at all be surprised if he stays in the top 20 for the year. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a well-designed card. It doesn't seem like it's overly broken, but it's going to be fun. I think people are going to really enjoy it. And the fact that the abilities, I mean, the first ability, the giving plus one one to uh, creatures number based on the number of legendaries you control is fine, but you're really playing the card for the second ability and honestly don't have to have as many you don't have to have an all legends deck to make it matter uh, because it cascades only into legendary cards which means if you're running you know 20 or 30 legends or you know even 10 and you want to hit specific legends you could make it even a slim down version that's more targeted that you're trying to hit specific legends uh, maybe for a combo or for other purposes so yeah i agree there's a lot of ways to build it um you know, I think, and also you can make it just fun, or you can make it slightly competitive, uh, which is great too. Yeah, uh, I, I definitely think I'll end up building Joda over time. I guess now is likely a good a time as any to remind you all about the Cool Stuff Inc. Customer Rewards Program. The more you buy with our five percent off coupon, five finance five, the closer you get to even higher rewards, including up to fifteen percent off Magic singles and assorted minis. Head on over to CoolStuffInc.com today to save big and build your loyalty uh, and that's a wrap for this week folks derek where can people find you online yeah hi i'm derek the dark mage and you can find me at oko assassin on twitter where can they find you online james you guys can find me on twitter at mdg critic as well as via my occasional articles on mdgprice.com and my constant haunting of our pro trader discord i'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mdgprice.com pro trader service for just 9.99 a month or 109.99 per year you can get early access to this podcast fantastic articles by the best mtg finance minds in the business low-cost group buys and a super active discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing magic the gathering once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best Magic Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. James, that brings us to the end of this episode of MTG Fast Finance. As always, enjoyed our discussion this evening. Thank you, Derek, and we'll see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.